started. Sorry about that. I will pray for us, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this morning and for you bringing us here to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray this time during our Sunday school hour would be edifying to us, that we would grow in our knowledge of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do I need to put this down? It seems a little... A little uh, is this good? Better? No. Good? No. Okay. So today we're, we're roughly halfway through um, our series in the book, um, The Mission of the Triune God. And the goal for today is to examine the, the pretty prominent theme in the book of the Word of God, or, or the Word, just put shortly, and the Word's function and role in the book of Acts. And we've touched on this topic sporadically throughout the study so far, but today's going to be a pretty sustained focus on the Word of God. Again, it's function in the book of Acts. And I found it to be a pretty interesting topic to study this week. It's been several categories that, that Sharner puts forth that, that I think are, are helpful, helpful for us in our reading of the book of Acts. And the first thing to say is, is, is something I've mentioned before, and that is that in Acts, and I would argue in the, the scriptures as a whole, the Word of God becomes a, a primary actor in history, or the Word is a primary actor in history, or, or a means by which God advances His, His purposes in the world. And I think this is going to make a lot of sense when we get to the, to the first section in the chapter regarding the, the relationship between God, the, the Trinity, the triune God, and His Word, the Word of God. But in the Bible, we see time and time again how the Word creates, sustains all things. It's something that, that grows. It's something that multiplies. And in the, books of Acts, in the book of Acts in particular... The Word of God plays an extremely active, and thus I would argue a very massive role in the book. And we can see this not just on the overt emphasis of Luke, um, including this theme in the narrative account of Acts, which he does quite a bit, but we can also see, see it in the, in the form by which Luke wrote Acts. And by that I mean we can see how the Word of God is central in Acts by looking at the structure, by looking at the content of the actual document that's been handed down to us. And we can notice, as Scharner points out for us, that, that about one-third one -third of Acts is comprised of speeches or, or evangelistic preaching, or sermons. And this is described as the very proclamation of God's Word. Or another way we could say the same thing is that one-third of Acts is made up of recounting the Word of God, being proclaimed from the, from the mouths of the apostles as they declare the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's a big deal because these evangelistic sermons, these speeches, 
that proclaim the Word of God, they contribute significantly to what we see as the structure of Acts. In many ways, these speeches form the backbone, or you could say the, the foundation, of the progression of the narrative account that Luke provides for us. And so, and you've also just may have noticed in previous lessons, we keep coming back to these sections of Scripture, we keep coming back to these sermons because of the important thematic elements in there and the, the theological concepts or content that is contained in them. They're actually, the, the speeches are central to our theological understanding of the book. They're essential to understanding the meaning of the book. And so just think of all the times we've, we've so far we've looked at Peter's sermon in chapter 2, right after Pentecost. Because contained in that sermon, and to, to some extent all the other evangelistic speeches, are the very major themes that Luke is emphasizing as what is important in the narrative. As what is key, what are the key theological truths that we need to understand. So, for example, in Peter's first sermon, each Trinitarian theme that we've looked at so far, the, the Father's plan and orchestrating of all things, the, the Son's resurrection and ascension and rule over all, and the Spirit's coming and the Spirit's empowering of the people of God. All of those extremely important and crucial themes are contained in the proclamation of the Word of God and, and the sermons that are recorded for us. Thus, they, that, that tells us how the proclamation of the Word of God actually embodies Luke's major themes he, he's seeking to emphasize. And at the very same time, what Luke is doing, and this is really brilliant, is it shows us that the Word of God itself then is a major theme. It's a major player in the book of Acts. And we can see that we can also see the connection of, of the proclamation of the Word of God through the Apostles' sermon and speeches, through, through the progress that the Word makes or the Word is making geographically in the book. We've said, we've said multiple times now how, how geography and the, the expanse of the gospel to the ends of the earth plays a, a, a very important role in Acts. It's very important in the structure of Acts. Remember how we said Acts 1.8? Acts 1.8 functions as a sort of table of contents for the, the rest of the narrative of Acts as it shows how the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we see this expansion of the gospel as the, the word is proclaimed as the word is preached, and it, and it multiplies. So we see Peter largely preaches in Jerusalem. Philip proclaims the word in Samaria. Paul proclaims the, the gospel, the good news, to the ends of the earth, among the Gentiles. So we can see that the word of God and the centrality of it in the book of Acts, as we look at the, the progress the word is making geographically, and the multiplication of that word that we see as, as the messengers, the, the apostles, are, are taking and proclaiming the word in these speeches and sermons that are recorded for us, that we have chronicled for us in the narrative. 
So the point to all of this here is just that we can see just by that emphasis of Luke, the, the, the structure of the text to include all of these speeches and the connections those speeches have to the important theological themes and the geographical expansion of the gospel-centered speeches, we can see all, by all of that the importance of the Word, the importance of God's Word in Acts, just by the way Luke wrote the document, the way he, he, he wrote the document for us, the narrative. Now, Schreiner is going to cover this, this important theme of the Word, the content of the Word as we see in Acts, by analyzing three different sections or three different emphases that we, emphases, emphasis, something, that we see as we study the book of Acts. So the first is the Trinity in the Word of God, the Trinity in the Word of God, which shouldn't surprise us if, we've, if you've been here the, the first three lessons. Then we're going to look at the content of the Word in Acts, what makes up the Word in Acts. And finally, something that I just mentioned we're going to unpack further is the actual multiplication of the Word in Acts. How does the Word multiply and grow in Acts? So first, the first thing to think about regarding the Trinity in the Word of God is that this section, it, it makes sense of the, of the logical ordering that, that Schreiner and Luke has been presenting to us in the book of Acts. So put simply, the Word of God progresses and, and multiplies, as we see in the book of Acts, according to the plan of the Father testifying to the ascended and, and exalted Son, and it grows in the power of the Spirit. So there's, we can see based on the, the logical narrative structure that we've been tracing throughout the study, that, that Schreiner is arguing is, is organic to the text. Following that structure actually helps us see what he calls a Trinitarian shape to the Word of God. A Trinitarian shape. I think it's a helpful way to think about the Word of God. And it makes sense given that it is the Word of God. And God is what? Triune. So we should expect to, to find the, a relationship or a Trinitarian shape between God and His revelation to us, His, His Word to us, because that is who He is in His essence. And the first way we see that is by looking at God the Father and how in the text of Acts, He's, he's the responsible agent for the expansion of the Word. He, he, he directs and enables His messengers in the early church through the power of His Spirit. We can also see this in the many, many times Luke modifies the, the phrase, the Word, with another phrase, of God. So we read a lot in the book of Acts, I mean, in the scriptures as a whole, the word of God. Shorna points out how for this is a, for the of God is a possessive modifier, which just simply means that the word that is multiplying in Acts is possessed by God. It is God's. He's, he's the owner of the words. He's the proprietor of the words. He's the administrator of the word, of his word. And we can see this phrase, Word of God, used throughout Acts. And it shows up at very important times, specifically in every major section of the book. 
So we see a reference to the word of God in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This includes an encounter with Cornelius, very important event with the inclusion of the Gentiles. All three of Paul's missionary journeys. The point is that the prominence of this phrase, Word of God, spans the, the majority of the book of Acts, thus showing for us that the, the, how the Word is God's. The Word is God the Father's. Next, we also see in Acts that God the Son, Jesus, is directly related to the Word. And we're going to cover this quite a bit more in just a moment as we cover the content of the Word. But I'll just say here, thinking about the Trinitarian shape of the Word as we see, as we see it in Acts, that the content of the Word, the content of the Word is largely centered on the life death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son. We can also see this in Luke's use of the phrase, the word of the Lord. This is the second most used phrase in reference to the word in the book of Acts, referring to the word of the the Son of God, the word of Jesus. Finally, we see the Spirit God the Spirit works extremely closely with the Word. Schreiner says we can think of it in, in this way. I find this helpful. He said, if God is the owner of the Word and Christ is the content of the Word, then the Spirit is the, the energy or the, the active agent behind the Word, the, the agent of application and, and the spreading of the Word in actual human history. And we saw that the, the majority of last week, right? How, how it was all about the Spirit empowering the people of God to speak what? To, to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim the Gospel message. And so the Spirit is, is integral to the Word in that He's the agent of expansion and multiplication of the Word. So remember back to the all-important Pentecost sermon from Peter, Peter quotes Joel 2.28, where in that text, the, the, the coming of the Spirit is connected with prophecy, with the, with the declaration, the proclamation of God's words. And then throughout Acts, when the Spirit comes, what do we see? Prophecy. We see, we see tongue speaking occurring and prophecy occurring, uh, uh, the declaration of God's Word. We see individuals are filled with the Spirit, and they declare the Word of God. They miraculously speak in, in, in known human languages, other tongues, declaring the Word of God. So notice, right, that there's just a clear connection between the coming of the Spirit and the declaration, the proclamation of the Word of God. But not only does the Spirit then kind of, you could think of it as compel human speech through these prophecies and, and tongues that He gifts, He also confirms the reception of the Word in those that are the people of God. So it's clear by looking at Acts that the Word of God and the Spirit are extremely closely related. Schreiner gives the illustration of of the sun and its rays. I think that's helpful. They they coexist in harmony together. They're, They're integral to one another. 
So just to sum up this section, what we see in the word having a Trinitarian shape in Acts is that the Father plans and directs the, the spread of the word, which we saw is, is his word, the word of God the Father. But the word is, is centered on, the, the content of the word is centered on God the Son, on Jesus Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, and, and exaltation. And then the, finally, the Spirit, God the Spirit, empowers God's people to, to speak the word of God in boldness, to proclaim it in confidence, um, and, and to give um, prophecies and tongues to God's people as they proclaim the word of God. And so God creates, what we see, right, is God creates new life, a, a, a new community, a new covenant community through the word in Acts, through the spread of the word in Acts. And so the, the word then we can see has this, this Trinitarian shape in Acts. So I'll stop here for any comments and questions. Probably the second gospel. The words of the apostles is, um, I think, what we mainly see in, in Acts. But I think the, the message contained in the gospel would be the best way to think about it. But I do think it applies to the written word, the Bible, the scriptures that we have now. All right, let's move on to the, to the content of the word, the content of the word that we see in Acts. And we've hinted at this before. Um, but Schreiner's initial statement, I think, is, is pretty helpful to say that if the word has a Trinitarian shape, the, the content of the word has a Christological center, meaning that, that Christ is central to the message of the word that is proclaimed and multiplied in Acts. Christ is central to the message of the word that is proclaimed and multiplied in Acts. And Trina argues that we see two, two synonyms used through the narrative that, that inform the reader, informs us of the content of the word. Those two being the gospel, the gospel and uh, related word, the, the message of the kingdom is two, the two phrases that we see the gospel and the message of the kingdom. And Schreiner then defends this to show how both of these terms show Jesus is the subject or Jesus is the content of the word in Acts. Is he's the, the substance of the gospel, of the kingdom message. Now the first thing to say about the gospel is actually how absent it is in the book of Acts. Schreiner records only two times that the noun gospel is used in Acts 15.7 and Acts 20.14. But what we see is that the verb related to the gospel, which we translate as evangelize or, or to preach the gospel, that, that verb is used all over the place. And, and the object of that evangelizing or the content of the preaching is, is Christ Jesus. We see it, the content also the, the kingdom of God. See, it's a message of peace, a message of promise. Sometimes the content is assumed. They're just evangelizing. And the context will, will give us what the content of the message is. But really, I think this section gets down to what exactly is the gospel? 
What is this message that they're proclaiming, the apostles are proclaiming? And we know that the gospel is a term meaning a, a, a message of, of good news, a proclamation of good news. Typically, it was used to be a dispatch of victory. It was traditionally used in political settings, political contexts. So an army won a battle. The nation would, would proclaim a gospel, would a message of the victory, the message of the good news. And Shrina argues that Luke is using the word and, and the verb of this, the verb form of this word to, to evangelize in, in this sense as a de- declaration of good news, but he, he repurposes the word, reconfigures it, the term, from its strictly classical sense by incorporating many themes that we see in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah. And I would argue this is what all the New Testament authors are doing. Luke is not unique in this, but we're focusing on Luke. And we can know this contextually just by looking at the many times that Luke, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, utilizes the use of the prophet Isaiah. He does it all all over the place. He, He references him, he cites him, he alludes to him. And the argument is, Shriner's argument, and this should clue us in, that Isaiah then is very important in Luke's mind. He's, he's important, and I would, again, argue not just Luke's mind, not just Luke's mind, but, but every New Testament author has the, the Old Testament in the front of their minds. But for Luke, Isaiah is very important in understanding what the good news is, what the gospel is, what is actually being proclaimed. Because according to Isaiah, the good news is that Yahweh... God, he, he reigns over all things. He rules over everybody through his, his servants, his coming servants suffering. This is the, this is the message we see clearly um, for us in Isaiah 53. So Isaiah actually uses this, this, this phrase, the good news, the, the gospel. He uses this concept, good news, in relationship to the coming reign of God and the return of the Israelites from exile. So we could think of that as for the people of God's restoration, their salvation, their their, their restoration. We see in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah explicitly uses this language. He says, "Go Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. And we see then that the good news is, Behold your God who rules with might and rewards those with him. He is like a good shepherd who tends his flock and gathers the lamb in his arms. So these are really wonderful verses. And what we see is that the good news is tied to, to God's establishing his, his rule and the, the shepherding of his people. So you can think of that as his, the, the restoration of his people, the establishment of his reign and the restoration of his people, the salvation of his people. We see later in Isaiah 52 that the, the feet of those who carry or who proclaim the good news are beautiful. Right? The, the Apostle Paul cites this verse in, in uh, oh man, Romans 10, Romans 10, 14, I believe. 
Um, the, the, the feet of those who carry the gospel, the good news, are beautiful because why? They proclaim peace. They proclaim salvation. They announce God's reign, the, the restoration of the people of God. So we see then that the, the good news in Isaiah's mind brings peace, brings salvation to God's people. Last week we looked at this verse, so we won't spend a lot of time here, but Isaiah 61, the anointed one, the son of God, announces that the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of God is on him, and he is to bring what? He's to bring good news, the gospel, which is defined in those verses as liberty of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberating those who are oppressed. This is also the, the good news. And Shriner's whole point here, and going back to these texts in Isaiah, is that this is what Luke has in mind when he's employing the term, or when the apostles are employing the term in actual history. This is, this is the gospel. So he's using the term not in the, a strictly classical Greek sense, um, Right, he has this idea of salvation. He has this idea of redemption that we see in Isaiah, that we see Isaiah actually prophesying a future of this occurring, and this is actually occurring in history through Jesus Christ. And so the, the apostles are making these connections. Luke is making this connection for us explicit with this word gospel with this word gospel or the verb to evangelize. This is the content of the message that's being proclaimed. This is the particular good news that Jesus' life, his death, resurrection, and ascension has brought. He's brought salvation. He has brought restoration to the people of God. So notice, right, you can see then what is the content of the word. What is the content of the Word of God in Acts? Now we also see, just like we see in Isaiah, that the scope of the good news is now just not for the restoration of the nation of Israel or, or the, the ethnic Jewish people, but it's actually restoration for the entire world. So Acts is obviously about the spread of the gospel, the spread of this good news to where? To the ends of the earth. Again, showing how, how Luke is working with these Isianic categories when he's employing this term gospel, when he's employing these terms evangelism or, or the proclamation of the kingdom. Now again, we, we also see the word of God or, or good news be referenced to as the message of the kingdom. One, one place we see this is when Philip is preaching Philip is preaching the good news in Samaria in Acts 8.12. We read, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So notice that phrase, the, the, the good news about the kingdom of God. This is another phrase Luke uses in Acts, which, which Schreiner views largely as and I think he's right here, largely as a synonym of for the gospel. So the, the good news of the kingdom. It's referring to the same thing we just talked about um, with, with all the references to, to Isaiah. It's the good news of salvation, 
the good news of, of the restoration of God's people. So the last thing we're trying to point out in this section is that we actually see quite a bit of, in the narrative account of Acts, a lot actually of opposition to the word. Opposition to the gospel, opposition to the kingdom message in the book of Acts. We've touched on this a bit, but there, there's no shortage of suffering. There's no shortage of, of persecution the apostles face in the book of Acts. And what we see then is that the means by which the good news is accomplished or, or multiplies or, or the kingdom is expanded, the kingdom message is proclaimed as, as more and, and more and more people are saved and become part of the new covenant community, the more the word multiplies and, and the gospel is accomplished is actually through the suffering of the witnesses, through the suffering of the apostles, through the persecution of the church. Which mirrors again the theme we see in Isaiah of the suffering servant, which is Jesus. So we then, as, as the apostles, as the followers and proclaimers of the same good news of the suffering servant, find in Acts the, the message being proclaimed is advanced in suffering. As, we, as there's a, a connection, a model of following in the footsteps of the Lord. Shriner writes that suffering in Acts provides an opportunity for ministry um, and, and catapults the word forward as the kingdom advances, which is really a remarkable thing to consider when we think about our own suffering and persecution, that this is actually means by which God brings forth or multiplies His word, that, that more and more people hear the gospel and are saved. And I think that's a key theme to think about when we think about the content of the word in Acts. So what we see then is that the apostles preach the king, they preach Jesus and his kingdom and his kingdom's message. They preach Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the kingdom of God, the promises of Jesus, right? All of that Isianic restoration language, all of that Isianic salvation language, all of that is encompassed in the, the apostles' proclamation of the good news. But notice all of it, all of it, what the, what the apostles proclaim, what we see the content of the word of God is, it's all centered on who? On Jesus, on, on Christ, God the Son. So Christ the King and the growth of His kingdom in this age. And so that's why Shriner's arguing, I think rightly, I think that's what, this is the way we need to view the Word in the book of Acts and, and the whole of Scripture, that the content of the Word is Christological. It's, it's centered on Christ. So any questions or comments before going to the last section? Jerry. Mm -hmm. I think he... Yeah, I think he's using that word rhetorically to say that it's everywhere in Acts, like it's on every page. Just meaning that it's, it's obviously not everywhere, it's not omnipresent, but meaning it's, it's rampant, there's persecution is rampant in Acts. He did in the, in the first chapter, okay. um, I can't remember if you're here, but... Definitely fulfillment is a massive theme, especially thinking about God's plan on, in the scope of history, which we see 
the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ and then in the Apostles' message. So, 100%, yes. I don't know. I, th- I think that's something Blake says has something. I think I would, I would push back a little bit in that. I, I think you're right, but if we look at the prophecies of Isaiah, especially the, the suffering servant aspect, it is exactly what yeah, the that, prophecies that is, are. That is, not what, that is not what the Jewish leaders Yeah, I agree with you. every Jewish person... Yeah. I think we're on the same page. All right, I'm going to move us on um, to the, the last section of the multiplication of God's Word. Um, and this is something we've talked about a lot in this study um, th- throughout about the, the multiplication, the, grow- the growth of God's Word in the book of Acts. And really, I think this idea stems from the truths that we've just covered, that if the Word has a Trinitarian shape and a Christological center, a Christological focus, so said another way, it is if the triune God is behind the Word being proclaimed, and the message is of the living and reigning ruler of everything, then really there, there's nothing that can stop it. There is no stopping it. And when we say it that way, I think our response then is, well, of course God's word multiplies. Of course God's word grows. God's word will do what God wants it to do. And as we study the book of Acts, we see no earthly power. We see no persecution of the church, no divisions within the church, not, not even the devil himself. Nothing can thwart the, 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 the plans of God, the word of God and its purposes. Nothing will stop God's word from accomplishing exactly what God intends. And so really we, we, we have by studying the growth and multiplication of the word in Acts is a study in God's sovereignty and his absolute control over all things and his um, bringing all history to an ultimate end, which is his end, through his word, through his people. And as I've stated, and and Schreiner has stated earlier in the book, that this is not novel, this is not new to the book of Acts. This is what we see in the entirety of the Bible. The word is, you can think of it as a divine agent to accomplish God's purposes. In the beginning, we see the word be an agent of creation, as God created everything by his word. In Isaiah, God's word doesn't return to him void. It accomplishes, right, exactly what God wants to happen, accomplishes exactly what God intends. And what that means really is that God's word, as a means by which God enacts history or, or accomplishes his purposes, it happens through the transforming of situations. It happens through the, the, the transforming of people's lives according to God's will. That's specifically what I think we see in, in Acts. The Word, then, is the the means, the agent of transformation in people's people's lives. And and what we see in Acts is that the Word of God is an agent of new creation, a a new covenant community where, where all of its members have been transformed by this gospel message, have been transformed by the Word, They've, they've received salvation by the, the, the Spirit applying the Word re, through the regenerating work of the Spirit. 
Right? Notice how, how it is the word that is the, the means of the new creation, the gospel message being proclaimed. Again, this is what Paul's, Paul's argument again in Romans 10. The gospel message is necessary for salvation. The word is necessary. And so Luke then uses some interesting words to describe what historically happened in the New Testament church. He speaks of the word growing. He speaks of the word multiplying. He speaks of the word conquering. All things we commonly don't associate with words. And that's because the word is fundamentally linked with this new creation. The new creation of God. The new covenant community that God is establishing in salvation history. And the word being living and active in this way is exactly what we should expect when we remember this, this key fundamental presupposition we started with. That the word is God's. It's, it's the triune God's word. It's breathed out by God. And what is God? What is the triune God? He is both living, he is active. So his word, his, his revelation of himself is living and active, multiplying, it grows. And Schreiner says we, we can see this all over the book of Acts, but three key places where we see the word living and multiplying are in these three key texts. And we'll take them in turn. Acts 6, 7, then Acts 12, 24, and finally Acts 19, 20. Acts 6, 7, Acts 12, 24, and Acts 19, 20. So first in Acts 6, this is where the, the 12 apostles appoint servants, what is sometimes known as, as proto-deacons, to help serve the, the, the Greek, the Hellenist widows, as they concluded it wouldn't be right for them to, to um, give up the preaching of the word and, and the praying for God's people to serve tables. And as a result, they, they appoint these servants. And the result of these servants being raised up in the church was that in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So notice here the, the, the opposition, potential pitfall of the church. There arose a situation where could have developed great uh, divisions within the congregation, uh, conflict within the church, a fracturing of the people of God. Right? Some of the widows weren't being served. And the decision by the apostles to appoint men to deal with the issue led to the multiplication of God's word, to the growth of God's word. And notice, too, here we get a big clue of what that multiplication actually is in, in, in history, in, in reality. The word of God increasing is tied to the church's numerical growth of, of more people being saved, of more people repenting and believing in Christ. So the, the multiplication of the word is the more people the word transforms through the regenerating work of the spirit. So that's key, I think, to understand as we think of the word growing. It's a growth of individuals being saved from, from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. That is how the, work, the word is multiplying, through the transforming work that it applies. Next, Acts 12 James, James is killed by Herod, and Peter's imprisoned. And then we, we see uh, angel of the Lord releases Peter from prison. Herod is then killed, 
He's struck down dead by God for not giving God glory. But notice, despite right, this fierce persecution, Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. So in this context, it's in the context of what? Persecution, right? So in the context of persecution, what we see is that no earthly power, no earthly king, no matter how awesome he thinks he is, no matter how powerful he thinks he is, can triumph over the word of God. And actually, those who attempt to harm God's people are all going to end up face the same fate Herod faced at the, the end of days, at the final judgment. This is the, anybody who opposes God and his people are going to face the same fate as Herod. But again, we see the, the same theme that, that nothing, not even the, the fierce persecution against God's people is going to stop God's word from multiplying, is going to stop God from saving people. He do, his word does exactly what he wants it to do. Finally, Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He's known as a mighty miracle worker among the, the community there. And there was some itinerant exorcists um, there. And by the way, that's probably like a top five worst job in human history, itinerant exorcist. But These guys, they, they, they see Paul's power, and they try to use it. They try to appropriate it by, to cast out a demon of a demon-possessed man. And they try to do that, remember, in both Paul and Jesus' name. It doesn't work out well. The, the exorcism failed. The demon-possessed man overpowered the exorcist, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. But because of this event, the, the pagan Ephesians, were some of them were saved, and, and they destroyed all their pagan magical books. And we see in 1920, Luke writes, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail, or conquer, mightily. The word increasing and conquering. Again, so we see that with the, 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 the salvation of these Ephesian magicians, magicians, we see more people added into the New Covenant community, displaying for us that the word of God, the gospel triumphs over demonic powers here. And another function, I think, of all these references to the word of God growing and multiplying is that it actually it, it gives God the glory for the growth in the church, for the growth of his community. God and his word are the reasons people are getting saved, and, and more and more and more and more people are getting saved. Right? It's not the apostles' ingenuity or, or their, their brilliance or even their, their boldness, although all of those things probably play a factor. But ultimately, who gets the glory when it's God's word that is being shown to be multiplied? God's word that is growing. God gets the glory in all of these emphasis. But these three important references to the word of God growing and multiply, continuing, continue a theme that, that's all over the place in Acts. And that's the, the church's growth, the word's spread, the gospel's proclamation to the ends of the earth amid various persecutions and trials. But again, we, we, we've, we've mentioned this a lot. I'll say it again. That's a very, very prominent theme in Acts. It's not omnipresent. That's why I didn't say it. But it is everywhere in Acts. It is, it's, it's all over the place. 
Um, opposition to God occurs, Trainer points out, it occurs in every locale. It, it, opposition occurs in Jerusalem. It occurs in Judea. It occurs in Samaria. It occurs at the ends of the earth. It occurs today. However, no matter what, God's, Schreiner uses this quote from, from Isaiah 2, um, verses 2 through 4, that the law of the Lord goes forth from Zion. Right, Schreiner's arguing, we, we see here, even in this Isaiahic language again in Isaiah 2, which you can turn there, the word of God being this divine agent, the means of enacting God's purposes. We read Isaiah 2, 2. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. So just another text we have in, in the Old Testament where the word is, is, is personified, you could say, as an active character in history, just like we've seen in Acts. It, it, it's multiplying, it's growing, it goes forth. It's closely associated to God. Thus, I think we can see how the word is active, right? It, it multiplies, it grows, it accomplishes the purposes for which God has sent the word. So just to close out our time, I'll, I'll summarize what we've seen so far, hopefully. What we've seen is that, that in Acts, the word grows, the word spreads, the word multiplies, even amid severe persecutions, conflicts, demonic attacks, um, the word is growing. It can't be stopped. It won't fail. It won't return back void to God. And this is because the word progresses according to the Father's plan. Its content centers on Jesus. And the power of the word stems from the Spirit of God who, who applies it. So there's a Trinitarian shape to the word that is actually what makes it utterly unstoppable. It is God's word. And so what do we see in Acts? That the message of the apostles, the word of God has power. It multiplies. It conquers. Shriner writes, it, it, the word enters foreign lands. It defeats Satan and his demons and offers forgiveness of sins. And just to bring this home a little to get a little practical. Every generation in the church, I think, faces the, the temptation to abandon the word, to alter the word, to, to, to soften the truth claims of the Bible, to abandon the truth. Maybe the pressing temptation in our generation with the word of God is to to water the word down, to make it more palatable to our, to our secular neighbors. So there's temptations of, well, if we just don't say this part of the gospel message, then, then it might actually be more accepted. If we don't say this thing about uh, Christ's lordship over all and um, his, his regulations for sexual behavior, if we don't say that, then, then maybe more people will, will accept it. I would just look at Acts. It's not true. We need to, to not be caught thinking that way because the word is still alive and active today. The gospel message is still being proclaimed. Miraculous salvations, every salvation is miraculous, is still occurring today. That's how we're all sitting here. So we can't 
water down the actual message that saves. We can't compromise on the truth contained in the Word because what we see in Acts, that the, the Word that is now codified for us in the Scriptures, in the Bible, is active, is alive. The Gospel message still does transform. It still does defeat darkness. So no earthly leader, no earthly power. All of those things are still true that we see in Acts for us today as we are faithful to the proclamation of the gospel, as we're faithful to uphold the truth in the scriptures. And now this is turning into a little sermon, so I'm going to stop. But the truth is, right, Acts is giving to, given to us as a renewal document. That's what Schreiner said at the introduction. Meaning it's given to us to, to encourage us um, and to, to, to encourage us, the church in every age, to give us confidence that His Word, that God's Word will accomplish exactly what He intends. Which means God's purposes will stand, His Word will grow, His Word will continue to multiply, more people will be saved, His elect will respond favorably to the Gospel when it is proclaimed, it's a guarantee. It's going to happen. That's where all of history is moving towards. And we, again, as a continuation of Acts, we get to continue in that same story. That's all I have for us this week. Next week, we'll, we're going to talk about salvation, the, the, the topic of salvation in the book of Acts. I'll pause here. Any last comments, questions? I'll go elite the ladies first. Sorry, Mike. All right. Thank you guys so much for engaging and reading. We'll see you next week. You're dismissed.